in this universe, there are all sorts of cosmic and stellar cataclysms that can occur. We have stars, massive ones that reach the end of their lives and die in catastrophic supernova explosions. We have stellar remnants like white dwarfs and neutron stars that can merge together in these spectacular events known as kilonovae that cause type 1a supernovae that cause a whole host of interesting things. And in the aftermath of these, we can end up either with nothing at all, with a neutron star, or sometimes with a black hole. But where is that line between a neutron star and a black hole? What are the events that occur that make the most extreme objects the most massive neutron stars or the least massive black holes? And how do we learn about them and what's happening right on this border? Come find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. have lots of ways of examining the universe right at this frontier. We can look at the objects that in-spiral and merge in gravitational waves. We can observe the high-energy light that comes out of these explosive events like supernovae and kilonovae, first in gamma rays and then in longer wavelengths of light. And we can study specifically neutron stars that aren't yet in one of these states or neutron stars that exist for only a very short time and then collapse into black holes. And here, to help us untangle all of this, I'm so pleased to welcome Dr. Cecilia Kirenci to the program. Cecilia is an applied mathematics faculty at UFABC in Brazil. She got her PhD from the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil, and she's currently a joint researcher. She's a scientist at the University of Maryland College Park, and she also works at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. Uh, Cecilia, I'm so pleased to welcome you to the podcast, and thank you for being here. Hi, Ethan. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm very happy to be here with you. Yeah, I'm so I'm so excited. You know, if you had said to me just about five or six years ago, if you had said, Ethan, I want you to tell me about multi-messenger astronomy, I would have only had one thing to talk to you about. I would have told you, oh yeah, sometimes we see these astronomical events that emit a wide variety of light and occasionally we can detect neutrinos from them. We can do that for the sun, we detect sunlight, and we also detect neutrinos from the sun. And in 1987, we had a supernova occur in a very close satellite galaxy, the Large Magellanic Cloud, just 165,000 light years away. We saw, you know, the explosion in light, but a few hours before that light arrived, we got a burst of about 20-something neutrinos. And for decades, that was it. We saw neutrinos and we saw light, and that was it. Light comes in all different wavelengths, but it's still just light. It's still just photons. Now, the situation is completely different. When we talk about multi-messenger astronomy, we rarely talk about neutrinos. We usually talk about light and gravitational waves. How, you know, would you say 
that this arrival of multi-messenger astronomy in terms of seeing things in light as well as seeing them in gravitational waves, uh, how has that helped us learn more about this universe we live in? That's a great question. And I must admit that back in 2010, I organized a workshop in Brazil, beautiful location at the beach, to talk about multi-messenger sources of gravitational waves. And that was before we had seen gravitational waves, before we had multi-messenger astronomy with gravitational waves, but we were already trying to prepare for it. I like to say that this is a very different way to see the universe. For me, it's like Galileo putting out his telescope and starting to look at the sky for the first time, and we can see many different things that we didn't see before. And the gravitational waves alone are already telling us a lot, for example, about how black holes are formed, how they form pairs, how they merge. But together with the traditional electromagnetic astronomy, we are learning a lot about neutron stars and about the dense matter that makes these neutron stars. So it's a very exciting time to work on this topic. And that's and that's something I think is really interesting. You know, it was it was revolutionary to me in 2017. Uh, we had been seeing gravitational waves. I believe the first event was observed in September of 2015, and it was announced uh, in February of the next year. It was announced a few months later. Over that time, that subsequent time, um, we had something like, we've seen around 100 gravitational wave events by now. But in 2017, there was a big one because uh, we saw what we now identify as a neutron star, neutron star merger for the first time. And, you know, when you have any gravitational wave in spiral, you actually have three phases to it. You have the in spiral phase where you have two objects in a decaying orbit around each other, where gravitational waves carry that energy away and the orbit decays. And then the two objects merge together. And so you have this merger phase. And then whatever you form at the end, if it's not spherical or in hydrostatic equilibrium, or if it's not symmetric enough, it's going to radiate additional gravitational waves away and have this ring down phase. In 2017, when this multi-messenger event occurred, we saw these gravitational waves. We saw this slow in-spiral decay merger. Um, I think it happened just 130 million or 140 million light years away. And what we saw was for about 10 seconds, we had this in spiral and then whoop, it just sort of disappeared. And then about 1.7 seconds later, a gamma ray burst arrived from it. And then, you know, something like 70 to 100 observatories all across the electromagnetic spectrum followed up and saw, oh yeah, this has a X-ray afterglow, and then later ultraviolet, op infrared, optical infrared, and, and even longer wavelength afterglows. Some of them, I believe, lasted for weeks or even months. And so how, you know, for me, that was revolutionary. But I imagine you, who, who actually work on this type of system, uh, 
it was probably revolutionary in a way I can't even imagine. What what did that event, that 2017 event, mean to you? <laughs> well, I must say that uh, the LIGO people are very good at keeping secrets. LIGO is the gravitational wave detector. Of course, they needed to spread the news to all of their colleagues in observational astronomy because uh, everyone was looking at it with their telescopes. But still, they managed to keep it a secret, just enough time for the announcement. And by the way, I think they're still looking at it in radio waves. Um, even now, even almost six years later, they're still looking at it in radio waves. Not not all the time, but I'm pretty sure there are people who are coming back and looking at it a little bit more after all this time, because there are types of follow-up that last for a longer time in radio. And it's uh, it was uh, an awesome announcement. As a matter of principle, the first announcement of the first binary black hole merger detected in gravitational waves. That was more special to me because of one thing that you mentioned, the in spiral merger and ring down. What I have worked on during my PhD were black hole signals expected to be seen in the ring down in gravitational waves. And there were no detections of gravitational waves back then and people would even look at me kind of in a condescending way, saying, well, even if we detect gravitational waves, we're not going to be seeing those ring down signals. They're going to be too faint. And then in the very first detection, that one from 2015, we can see the ring down in gravitational waves. And that was a very special moment. That was my, guess who's got friends going to Stockholm now? And guess what? <laughs> They saw the, the ring down gravitational waves that I was studying in my PhD. So that was fantastic. Now, the, the first binary neutron star merger, the one from 2017, that was just a beautiful thing to see how observations in gravitational waves and in electromagnetic astronomy, the whole multi-messenger thing came together, how the models could describe it so well. That was a, a beautiful community effort. Now, from my side, being a theorist, I was not involved in any of the observations. And again, because what I study is usually related to the ring down, I was just a little bit sad that the ring down in gravitational waves could not be seen with the gravitational wave detectors, because although we understand fairly well what that signal should look like, we did not have enough sensitivity in the, in the gravitational wave detectors to see that signal which was going to be with frequencies higher than kilohertz. So that is really the part that I study, and that part remained hidden for that event, where we saw everything. But that was the part that we didn't see. You know, that's that's really interesting because uh, first off, 
congratulations on being a little bit prescient on the ring down and its importance and also congratulations on not listening to the naysayers you know everyone always says oh this thing is technically impossible until we go and do it um because we knew theoretically that this phase had to exist uh it was really just a question of whether we were going to be sensitive to it or not and it turned out uh, even with that very first detection, and and by the way, for all you listeners out there, you should know that LIGO, which has now been joined, in addition to the two twin detectors, has now been joined by Virgo in Europe and has recently been joined by Kagra, uh, which is, I believe, the Japanese gravitational wave detector. So these four detectors are now going to start observing later this year all together with the original LIGO detectors at a much greater sensitivity to what they were doing in 2015 or even in 2017. So there's a chance that for if we were to get another event like the multi-messenger event that occurred in 2017, there's a chance we would be able to see that ring down phase that we missed in the first in the first such event, uh, because it's not just a question of of uh, the frequency range, it's also a question of the strain amplitude, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So when I say that they were not able to see that signal, it's because of the strength the signal had. So if you were to put that source closer to the detection, you might be able to see it. Or, as you say, if we were to see that same event again with the now upgraded detector, we would be able to see more. So that's something very exciting. But there is a word of caution, which is the following. As the detector becomes more sensitive, that means that it can see events that happen farther away. And because there is more volume, farther away than nearby, most of the events that we're going to see are still going to be faint events, but farther away. However, if we are lucky to get an equally close event, we are going to be seeing it much better. Yeah, but this to me is... is this to me is just an advantage all around because you're saying, okay, look, if you can see twice as far away, that means you're increasing the volume of which you search by that factor of two in all three dimensions. So your volume search increases by a factor of eight. But it also means that if you get something within that original volume that you were sensitive to, now you're getting to see it with much better sensitivity. It's sort of just as if you build a larger telescope with more light gathering power and better resolution. Yeah, you can see objects of an equivalent brightness to your half-size telescope. Uh, you can see something that's, that's much farther away and you're going to see many, many objects that are very far away. But those same objects, those same classes of objects that you saw close by, you can still see all of those too. You can just see them with better resolution. So we should expect, yeah, we're going to have more event rates 
for the more distant, fainter signals, which is great, right? That's where most of the events we've seen are, is sort of near the limits of what our instruments can reach. But those close events, those high amplitude events, uh, we're gonna be able to see those exquisitely. And can you tell us when we can see something like a neutron star merger explicitly up close, when we can see it in that high resolution, what can we learn from looking at a neutron star, neutron star mergers ring down phase? Right. So there we have um, three different possibilities after the two neutron stars merge. And details are going to depend on what exactly the neutron star is made of. A description of that is called the equation of state that relates the pressure in the neutron star material to the density in the neutron star material. By the way, neutron stars are not just giant balls of neutrons. And we, although the material is very neutron rich, what lies in the center of neutron stars is still very much matter of active research, but nature must have chosen one equation of state for neutron stars. So I'll assume that exists, even though I don't know it. Now, for that equation of state, a neutron star can have a maximum mass, which means that if I try to make a neutron star heavier than its maximum mass, it is going to collapse and form a black hole. And that is especially important if I'm colliding neutron stars together. So if I start with two neutron stars that individually are light enough so that combined they form a neutron star less massive than its maximum mass, the result of that merger is going to be a stable neutron star, probably one that is very close to its maximum allowed mass, but it is going to be stable. And if I see that that is happening, definitely I'm going to be able to see that in the gravitational wave signal, because in the ring down after the merger, I'm going to be seeing gravitational waves with frequencies that are characteristic of that neutron star. So that neutron star, the newly formed neutron star after the merger of two light neutron stars, that one is as perturbed as can be, right? It has just been smashed into existence. So almost like you hit it with a very big hammer and you watch it ring down with its characteristic sound. So this is definitely something that we are going to be able to tell directly and very easily from the gravitational wave signal, and it is going to have consequences for the electromagnetic counterpart of that event. But that is one possibility. We started with two very light neutron stars, and now suppose that we start with two neutron stars in the binary that have combined masses such that after they merge, you are definitely above the maximum mass that a neutron star can have, then you know that it's going to have to collapse to form a black hole. But it could collapse immediately 
to form a black hole. And then what you're going to see in gravitational waves is very similar to the previous case, except that the ring down frequency of the black hole is different from that of the neutron star. You have a higher frequency and much faster decay of that signal, which always happens when you have a black hole, by the way, because black holes have an event horizon and anything falls through the event horizon and disappears from the observation. And that is also valid for the gravitational waves that are being emitted. So the characteristic ring down signal of a black hole uh, falls off exponentially much faster than that of a neutron star. Now, Cecilia, can I can I just jump in and ask you, is this related to the fact that uh, that neutron stars have a finite size of somewhere typically between about 10 and 20 kilometers in size? And so an object is going to radiate with a frequency in proportion to its size. Smaller objects have a higher frequency and do it faster. Bigger objects have a lower frequency and do it slower. And so a black hole is gonna be much more compressed. Its event horizon is always gonna be much smaller than say the radius of a neutron star. So black hole does it faster, falls off faster, has higher frequency, and a neutron star is gonna be slower and lower frequency. Yeah, I think that's a very good way of putting it. And definitely you have that scaling with the mass for all of these astrophysical objects. And not only the mass, but the uh, average density of the object is also important. So yes, definitely the, the mass and the size of the objects sort of dictate with details in the calculation, the characteristic frequency that they are going to have. Well, great. I want to ask you, because I know it's particularly interesting, I want to ask you about that intermediate case, that Goldilocks case, where things are just right, or from a certain perspective, just wrong, and you're sort of right on that border of where you can have a stable neutron star versus where you'll lose your stability and become a black hole. But first, I want to pause and acknowledge and thank our sponsor, for sponsoring the Starts With a Bang podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Avenues Online, the virtual campus of Avenues The World School. Avenues Online is an accredited tier one private school designed for students from toddler through 12th grade who want to pursue a world-class education freed from the constraints of a physical school. Learn alongside peers living on six different continents and in more than 20 countries with a global faculty leading the way. Learn more at avenues.org slash SWAB. Thanks to them, and now back to our program. So Cecilia, we've talked about two low-mass neutron stars that merge and produce a stable neutron star in Ring Down. And then we talked about two high-mass neutron stars that merge and immediately form a black hole, form an event horizon, collapse to a black hole, and much more quickly, and with much higher frequency, they too ring down in gravitational waves. What happens 
in the in-between case. What happens where you have two neutron stars who merge together, where their combined mass is sort of right at that threshold or right in that threshold range where, yeah, you can have a stable neutron star, but you could also have a neutron star that's just a little too heavy for the combination of its mass and its spin, and it collapses to a black hole afterwards, or it's on the cusp of collapsing to a black hole. What, what do we see or what do we expect in that case? Right. So you mentioned spin, and spin is definitely an important thing there. Because I told you that a neutron star has a maximum mass that it can have. But if that neutron star is spinning very fast, then it can have a slightly heavier mass. Maybe heavier even by up to, I don't know, 30% than what it could support against gravitational collapse if it was not spinning at all. And the thing is that when you merge two neutron stars, there is a lot of spin because you have all of that orbital angular momentum of the two neutron stars going around each other, even if each individual neutron star is not spinning. When they merge and they form a single object, that object is spinning fast because you have to conserve all of that orbital angular momentum, even if you are emitting some of that with gravitational waves during the process because gravitational waves carry not only energy but also angular momentum. Nonetheless, the object that you form in the merger is spinning fast and that helps if it is still a neutron star, even if very briefly, helps sustain it against the gravitational collapse. So what you can have there is uh, very heavy for neutron star standards. So we're talking here about maybe 2.5 solar masses in mass. Um, this object is not really spherically symmetric. It is rotating very fast. It is called a hypermassive neutron star. And here the hyper tells you that it's more massive than it has the right to be and still be called a neutron star. It's not going to be stable. It is going to have to collapse. How long it gets to hang in there before collapsing has to do with just how fast it is spinning. It's probably, according to simulations, uh, spinning differentially. It cannot spin like a solid body because it's spinning so fast. It's probably uh, losing a little bit of mass as it is spinning as well. So this um, rather complicated object to simulate has been seen in numerical relativity simulations of binary neutron star mergers. And we see the gravitational wave signal that it should have in the simulations. It um, has a frequency around 2-ish kilohertz, plus minus 1 kilohertz, definitely too high for current detectors. And in simulations, we can see that this signal lasts for a little while, 
little bit of a complicated signal, different frequencies contributing at the same time, and then it shuts down, collapses to form a black hole, and we have the black hole signal that decays very fast. So this is a signature of this object that we would definitely be able to recognize in gravitational waves. Now, there are lots of things that we can learn from it. For example, it's, uh, if we have seen it in gravitational waves, we know the masses of the two neutron stars in the binary. We can estimate the mass of the, uh, of the hypermassive neutron star and of the black hole that is formed afterwards. So we are learning about how much mass the neutron star can support. We are learning about how this hypermassive neutron star rotates. Um, this information allows us to learn about what a neutron star is made of, so these exotic states of matter inside of the neutron star. And this is uh, all very complementary to other studies that can be done, for example, uh, with X-ray observations that try to measure the radius of a neutron star. There's a mission from NASA called NICER that does that. With current gravitational wave detections, we try to estimate how much a neutron star is deformed by its companion when the two of them are spiraling together towards the merger. And that also has to do with what the neutron stars are made of. So this is all um, a big effort coming from different sides that ultimately leads to our understanding of what's inside the core of neutron stars, which could be exotic particles, a quark moon, plasma, all sorts of crazy different things that are in the realm of nuclear and particle physics, but unfortunately, we cannot simulate on the biggest accelerators on Earth. No, this is all incredibly interesting, and I hope you don't mind. I have so many questions for you, but but I do want to, before I get into those, I do want to impress on our audience that even though the specific things you're talking about uh, are coming from simulations in numerical relativity, namely, what are we going to see from the ring-down phase of the merger of these two new neutron stars that make a hypermassive neutron star? This is not purely theoretical. That first gravitational wave event of two merging neutron stars that we saw, the 2017 event, we know that made a hypermassive neutron star. We know that those neutron stars merged together. They formed another neutron star that lived for about a second. And I think, like you said, it was just a little bit more massive than two and a half solar masses. I think it was somewhere in the range of two and a half to two and three quarters solar masses. We know it made a new neutron star that lived for less than a second and then collapsed to a black hole. But if we couldn't measure the ring-down phase from gravitational waves, how do we know that that's what occurred? So for the case of the binary neutron star merger detected in 2017, 
there is a lot of modeling that goes into that. But even though we could not see that ring down phase in gravitational waves, we could see the electromagnetic radiation that was emitted. And there we have specific signatures that point in this direction. For example, if you were to form a black hole immediately, what happens is, again, black hole has an event horizon, stuff falls into the black hole and go out of the picture, right? So one of the consequences for that is that you would lose for example, a lot of neutrinos that instead of being radiated away, they could fall through the black hole event horizon. And the lack of those neutrinos would eventually change the composition of the material around this black hole, because you know that we can combine uh, protons and electrons to make neutrons and there is a neutrino that goes into that reaction as well. Or, on the other way around, if you start with the very neutron-rich um, neutron star material, we can end up creating a lot of protons and electrons with the neutrinos again playing a part on this. So the fact that if you had immediately formed a black hole, you'd have changed the composition of the material around it, and you would have changed the opacity of this material, would have caused a different electromagnetic signature from what was seen. So because they saw the kilonova, and the kilonova was initially blue, and then it was red, that can be understood as an indication that you had, even if briefly, that hypermassive neutron star phase, because it's an indication of having those extra neutrinos creating those extra uh, protons and electrons and allowing the first light to come out to be blue. I see. That's really interesting. So I know the second neutron star neutron star merger that was seen in gravitational waves i i don't remember if this happened one or two years later but it happened it happened after the 2017 event that we saw uh i know there was no electromagnetic signature seen and some people argued oh well that's because it was further away and you know, even if it made one, we wouldn't have been sensitive to it. But I've also heard other people argue, oh, well, looking at the frequency and distance to these uh, gravitational waves, because there's, there's a little bit of a degeneracy. You talked about how we can know the mass of, a, of the objects that in spiral to form a black hole or to form a neutron star, but we can only know the mass if we also know the distance to the object, because there's a bit of a degeneracy there. But looking at the combined features that we saw in gravitational waves, that one was massive enough, the second event was massive enough that we're positive it went direct to black hole. So it's possible that there was no electromagnetic signature at all. So regardless, you would have expected, okay, whether it actually made an electromagnetic signal or not, 
we know that if you make a neutron star first, you should have that blue color to your spectrum. And if it stays a neutron star, it should remain blue. But if there's a transition to red, that tells you it went from being a neutron star to being a black hole. Do we, do we have that right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And um, it's quite, I, I believe it is correct that if you don't have the hypermassive neutron star phase, you are going to have a fainter kilonova, and that is going to be harder to detect. In the 2017 case, what we saw first was the gamma ray burst. And then with the localization of that gamma ray burst, people were able more easily to look for the kilonova and find it. However, gravitational waves, they are emitted in all directions. If you consider the, the plane where the binary is moving along, you are going to be able to see more gravitational waves if you're seeing the binary face-on or edge-on but you are going to see them regardless in every direction. Now, the gamma ray burst, on the other hand, is jetted, so it has a collimated direction from which the gamma rays are coming. So you just have to be that lucky that the gamma ray burst is pointing in our direction and we can use it for finding a good localization better than what you can do with gravitational waves. Because looking for the, um, the kilonova in the optical wavelengths, if you have a very large part of the sky to sample, is really hard because the optical telescopes they have, they tend to have much smaller fields of view. So you have to use your telescope to tile this large uncertainty region and look for something that is evolving and changing in color and in intensity because a kilonova is a transient. So you're not just looking for a new star, but you're looking for something that is changing in a certain way. So we were extremely lucky with the 2017 event and with the second event maybe we just weren't that lucky that the gamma ray burst was coming in our direction to help us find possibly a fainter kilonova i see so we we actually have to get lucky to see a gamma ray burst you're telling me there are very likely many more gamma ray bursts than the ones we actually see because you need that serendipitous alignment of whatever the progenitor of the gamma ray burst is, you need its jet to be serendipitously aligned with you, with your location. And if it's not pointed at you, it's going to be so much fainter than if it does make a jet that is pointed at you. Absolutely, yes. But although now we expect that uh, possibly for most of the binary neutron stars that we see, merging in gravitational waves, we are not going to be that lucky to see the gamma ray bursts. The thing is that we have been detecting gamma ray bursts for a few decades now. So there are large 
archives of gamma ray burst data that can be used for study. Well, that's really interesting. Before before we get into that, I hope it's okay. I still have a, a few neutron star questions for you, and also uh, some things I want to say about neutron stars, just to just to help our our listeners sort of uh, make sure we're all on the same page. Uh, one is when I think about a neutron star. I think about them as, okay, this is something that was generated typically, not exclusively, but typically from a core collapse supernova. I had a massive star. It went through all the different stages of nuclear fusion. It started fusing hydrogen into helium, then helium into carbon, and then went on to carbon, neon, oxygen, uh, silicon, etc., until it couldn't fuse anymore, then it had a supernova. And what was left behind was what we call a neutron star. But typically, a neutron star, although we call it a neutron star, it isn't like it's made of 100% neutrons. We think that there's a big, thick layer of neutrons in there. But on top of that, maybe the outer 10% of it is made of other heavy atomic nuclei, things that are a mix of neutrons and protons. And on top of that, there's probably just normal matter, like maybe an ionized plasma where you have nuclei and also electrons there, and maybe even neutral matter far enough away. Um, then inside, inside that layer of neutrons, you have something that's denser and hotter than, than your typical atomic nucleus. So you'll have a set of free, unbound quarks and gluons, what we call a quark-gluon plasma. And if you go far enough towards the center of the neutron star, you might not even just have up and down quarks and anti-quarks. You might start having strange quarks or even charm quarks or these heavier, more exotic particles and states of matter. So we're kind of uncertain about what's happening at the interior, but the outer layers are something we know a little bit better. When we talk about the size of a neutron star, like you mentioned, uh, we have this wonderful observatory on the International Space Station called NICER, which I believe took the first measurements of neutron stars and found that they were about, I think, uh, about 11 kilometers across. I think it's diameter and not radius, but I'm not sure. Uh, it is radius, a radius of approximately 12 kilometers. A radius of 12 kilometers. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so what we're talking about when we talk about these objects is we shouldn't expect that they're all the same size. You know, when we when we talk about giant planets, you know, you can look at Jupiter and say, oh, Jupiter's bigger than Saturn. Jupiter is three times the mass of Saturn, and yet it's only about 10 or 10% bigger than Saturn in radius. Uh, and part of the reason is because we think Jupiter undergoes gravitational self-compression. If you increased the mass of Jupiter, you would actually find that its radius shrinks. We see this also with white dwarf stars. With white dwarfs, which are remnants of sun-like stars, the lower mass white dwarfs, the ones that are only maybe half of the mass of the sun, uh, those are actually bigger than planet Earth. But you have white dwarfs, as you increase their mass, they actually shrink in size, and the highest mass white dwarfs are smaller than planet Earth. 
do we see that same relationship with neutron stars that the more massive they are, the smaller they are? Or is this something we haven't yet determined? Well, as far as we can understand the theory, exactly the same effect that you are describing should work for neutron stars. When you increase their masses, they should become smaller. So as a trend, absolutely, this is what should happen. Now, because their sizes are about 12 kilometers in radius, this is a very small object and it's very hard to measure its size. And standard approaches such as are used for uh, determining the size of a white dwarf for example, which, okay, it's bigger than 12 kilometers, but it's still the size of our planet, and we're thinking about a star that is very far away, so it's not really like we are measuring it by eye or with a ruler in the telescope or even with Gaia, right, which is an amazing measuring instrument. Uh, no, we need a model to understand the radiation that comes out of the star and we make a black body assumption for that star. And based on that, we are able to calculate what that radius should be. And this kind of works for many stars. It kind of doesn't really work so well for neutron stars. We have more uncertainties. We have more gravity. We have more uncertainties on what it's made of. But definitely, we expect that they should become smaller overall trend as they are more massive. Now, NICER has been able to provide the first reliable estimates for the sizes of two neutron stars. So this is, we have two points <laughs> and their radii are very similar. And this is a, a detail that is a little bit more technical. But the thing that you're talking about, that they should become smaller when their mass increases, is definitely easier to see when the masses are really low for neutron stars. When the masses are getting higher, more, more like typical neutron stars, you can have this mass radius curve going like almost vertically, and the radius doesn't change a lot when you are making your star more massive uh it's uh that's a problem we have i believe with uh with giant planets also much more so than white dwarfs is that um you know you can have i i believe there's a very very small change in the radius of a planet that's the mass of jupiter to the radius of a planet that's 10 times the mass of jupiter mm-hmm uh, and that applies to neutron stars, apparently, in a similar fashion. I wanted to ask about the uh, spin thing as well. I know that if I had, like, a, a neutron star, the way, the way I think about spin is I think about it similar to the way I think about a figure skater, right? If you have a figure skater who's spinning and their arms are out to the sides and their legs are out to the sides and you see them spin at a certain rotation rate, when they bring their arms and legs in towards the center, that rotation is going to speed up. And that's due to the conservation of angular momentum. 
What you're talking about with two neutron stars, I imagine, is like if you have pairs figure skating, where you have uh, two figure skaters holding onto each other, rotating about a common point where they're both moving on the ice. If they pull themselves in so that they're together, they're going to start spinning even faster. And so when you have a neutron star merger, I would imagine that even if the individual neutron stars didn't start out spinning, that whatever their post-merger thing is, is going to wind up spinning incredibly rapidly because you're taking two neutron stars which are orbiting each other at a pretty fast speed uh, that were originally separated by a large distance compared to the size of a neutron star, right? Something like, you know, thousands or even millions of kilometers at one point. Now they're all in at one point and that same thing is happening with a radius of about 10, 10 to 12 kilometers. This neutron star is gonna be spinning really rapidly, definitely, uh, relativistically or close to the speed of light. Is that is that pretty much an inevitability anytime you have neutron stars in spiraling and merging? Well, there are some things that uh, we need to respect in physics, right? We need to uh, conserve energy. We need to conserve momentum. We need to conserve angular momentum. And the conservation of angular momentum is going to do it exactly as you described with the pair of figure skaters. You will end up with something that is rotating very fast. The way of not doing that would be if you had the two neutron stars in the binary, each one of them spinning in the opposite direction that they are going around each other. So if you could have the spins of the two neutron stars in the binary cancelling their orbital angular momentum in some sense, oh. you could in principle cook up your parameters to end up with a merged object, neutron star or black hole, that isn't spinning. It's... But this is just what simulators could do in their spare time playing with the parameters and tuning them very carefully in order to make that happen. Yeah, I would imagine that would have to be a very finely tuned thing, sort of like how if I give you two big numbers, I say, hey, let's go to the let's go to the Forbes billionaires list and I want you to pick two random billionaires off this list. Um, and then I want you to say, What's, what's the difference in their net worths from one another? Chances are it's going to be a big number. Chances are if this one's worth, you know, $3.5 billion, this other one is not also going to be worth $3.5 billion. They may be worth 1.4 or 10.6. Like they, they come with different properties. In general, if I have two big numbers and I say, what's the difference between these two big numbers? It's also going to be a big number. Yeah, you might say, oh, but I randomly pulled both Winklevoss twins. Yeah, okay, fine. I could believe their net worths are very close to each other. Like, oh, I picked 
two people and they're both co-founders of the same multi-billion dollar company. Okay, I can imagine that. That's the type of fine-tuning we're talking about. We're not talking like, oh yeah, we just had two neutron stars that formed and this is really common. Look at that. The way that both of them spin versus how they're orbiting each other, all the angular momentum cancels out and there's almost no angular momentum afterwards. That's, that's a pretty finely tuned and uh, naturally unlikely scenario, isn't it? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's just to say that you are telling me there is a chance. <laughs> yes, there is a chance. Right. So maybe maybe if instead of having two neutron star mergers that we've seen in gravitational waves, maybe maybe once that gets up to like two million neutron star mergers, we'll we'll have a handful. We'll have a handful that don't that don't have a sub appreciable spin. It's still I don't think it's going to happen, but the chance exists. Okay. We'll we'll go with that. We'll go with that. Uh, one thing that I think confuses a lot of people, and I, I know this is a little bit confusing to me, when I think about, okay, if I have a planet and I spin the planet very quickly, uh, it's not going to be a sphere. It's going to be in what we call hydrostatic equilibrium. So it's going to make this different shape called an oblate spheroid, where it's a bit compressed at the poles and there's a big bulge at the equator. Now, a lot of people, when they think about a neutron star that isn't spinning as a perfect sphere, then you would say, okay, well, if I make my neutron star more massive and it spins faster, won't the poles be even more compressed? Won't they be closer to the center? And won't it be easier to make a black hole? Why can a more massive neutron star that spins rapidly survive for longer than that same mass neutron star if it weren't spinning? Okay, that's a that's a very cool question. It's a it's a very interesting way to to think about that. Um, about this uh, compression, the poles. Just wanted to say that, of course, we know that this is also true for the Earth. So, if we measure the circumference of the Earth around the equator or around the meridian, going through the poles, we're going to have different values, and there. Are there is interesting history about that when people were just trying to think what would be the correct answer. And there was real confusion on whether the Earth would be flattened at the poles or actually pointy at the poles because of its um, going around spinning. Oh, or whether it would be like a prolate spheroid, like, a, like an American football where it's pointed at the end. Exactly. Yes. So there, there was a lot of controversy back in the day before people were able to make the proper measurements and develop the proper math to put the case at rest. There were people in the camp that said it's going to be flattened at the poles and people who were saying that, no, it's going to be like the uh, American football. I don't know if the game already existed back in the day, but that would be the, the sort of a Zeppelin shape. Right, but but they they had to have known this 
by the 17th century that it was flattened at the poles because um, because when you're farther away from the center of the Earth, like you are at the equator, uh, the rate of acceleration at Earth's surface, what, what we call lowercase g, like a g-force, uh, we know that it's smaller at the equator than it is at higher latitudes. Uh, and we learned that from pendulum clocks. I don't know if you know this story, but when European clockmakers brought clocks to the New World, to the Americas, um, the European countries where they had built them were at higher latitudes. So they brought the clocks to the Americas, and surprise, surprise, the clocks were not running at the right rate. They started running at the wrong rate because they're a pendulum clock, and the rate at which a pendulum ticks is dependent both on the length of the pendulum and also what is gravity at Earth's surface. So they said, oh, my clock's defective. They shipped it back to Europe, back to the Netherlands, and when it got back to the Netherlands, it ran at perfect time. There was nothing wrong with it. Uh, and that was, I think, how we learned, oh, that's how the gravitation of Earth changes with latitude. Uh, so I think that was how they must have figured out the answer. But um, but that's curious. So, so after we figured out it was an oblate spheroid, uh, what, what happens then? <laughs> okay, so after we know now that uh, when you have something like a planet or a star, and it's rotating, it's flattened of the poles. Great. Your question, coming back to your original question, is why does that happen, a neutron star, to support more mass than if it was not rotating? Because you made a very good point. If it is flattened at the poles, that's closer to the center, so you're going to have a stronger gravitational attraction. That's the argument, right? Right. Okay. Yeah. So here, what's going to play a more important role is um, that if your star is rotating and if you are in the, if you are sitting on top of the star that is rotating, um, you are going to have a centrifugal force, right? You have a centripetal force that makes it rotate, but if you are in this accelerated frame, you feel a centrifugal force. So you're going to be you're going to be pushed out away from the rotation axis. Exactly. So then what you have is that what's usually preventing the star from collapsing, what keeps it in hydrostatic equilibrium is the balance between the pressure of the gas or the material that makes up the star versus the gravitational attraction. So this pressure of the gas, let's call it, acts like a, an outward force. The gas doesn't want to be squeezed too much, and pressure provides this force that unsqueezes until you get to this equilibrium. Now, you set it to rotate, you have this centrifugal force that is acting like an extra outward force, which is what happens you to sustain more matter against the gravitational collapse. I see. I see. Well, thank you. That's a, 
that's a good and interesting explanation. So, so thank you for that. So now, now that we do this, right, I know that we've measured some neutron stars in isolation. And I think the most massive one we've seen by itself is something like 2.2 solar masses. Um, and then when we see neutron stars uh, merge, we know they can make black holes. Um, is there, is there like a hard and fast threshold? Like, do we know where all the two and a quarter to two and a half to maybe two and three quarter solar mass neutron stars are or why we haven't seen them? And do we know why when we see the black holes that we see, why there are so few of them that are less than five solar masses? Right. I know there's sort of like this this population gap of I think they had previously called it a mass gap where they were like, where where are all of these objects? And now I think we know they're there, but there aren't very many of them. Do we do we have any idea why that's going on? Right. Yeah. People like to talk about the lower mass gap for black holes, which would be nominally from, I don't know, three to, or let's two, two and a half to five solar masses, something like that. Because there is also an upper mass gap for black holes, but that's a different story and it's in the about hundred solar masses. But for our lower mass gap, so between neutron stars and between black holes, it's going to depend very much on who you ask, uh, because we still probably lack enough observations to give a final answer to this. Uh, it is true, we already know, that when we collide two neutron stars, we make a black hole that's about 2.5 solar masses, right? So there's nothing preventing us from forming a black hole with that mass, we know that they are out there. If, however, they are formed after the merger of two neutron stars and you end up with that isolated little black hole, it's going to be very dif difficult to see where it is and measure its mass. Suppose that a binary neutron star merger happened a long time ago, we had no chance of seeing the gravitational waves, we're left with that little black hole, we don't know where it is. We, black holes are black. Oh, we're going to need a big uh, wide field microlensing survey to find them, won't we? Yes, yes. So people are starting to do that. And that's very exciting as a way to find these small, isolated, dark black holes that are not in a binary. They, there's no radiation coming from near them. Yeah, microlensing is a very exciting way to look for these little guys. Um, in terms of how, um, when you're forming your neutron star or your black hole from a supernova explosion, it's something that even students would like to know uh, a good answer, right? So we know that uh, what sets the evolutionary path of a star is to first order their initial mass, right? 
So it would be great if I could say yes. So for stars that start their life with masses between uh, 10 and 20 solar masses, you're going to form a neutral star at the end of your life. If they're lighter than that, you form a white dwarf. If they're heavier than that, you form a black hole. That would be great to know, except we have no indication that it works in a simple way like that. And there are people doing simulations where they are kind of able to see that you can start with stars of very similar mass and try to simulate the outcome of the supernova if it becomes a neutral star or if it becomes a black hole. And if you're kind of at threshold, it's borderline stochastic if you're going to form the neutron star or if you're going to form the black hole. Because it depends more on details of the explosion of how much mass you kick out, for example, uh, whether you're ending up with a neutron star or if you're ending up with a black hole. It's, uh, it's something that we still don't have the final simple answer and maybe with better observations, different types of observations, we're going to have a larger sample of these small black holes and refine our understanding. Well, let me ask you then, because this is, that's a, I mean, a thank you for being honest. Thank you for not like lying to me and telling me like, oh yeah, we just, we know that this is the picture. And if you, if you're born with this mass, you're going to be a white dwarf. And if you're born in this mass range, you're going to be a neutron star. And if you're born in this mass, you're going to be a black hole. Um, it, it's not that simple. And that's great that we still have ongoing, you know, things to figure out. I'm, I'm not surprised, but you know, that's one of them. But one of the things I was really curious about is because I talked to you about multi-messenger events. I talked to you about things we've seen in gravitational waves. And you very smartly brought up, hey, Ethan, we've been seeing gamma ray bursts that arise from neutron star, neutron star mergers. At least a bunch of them do. Maybe not all, but a bunch of them do. Um, have you been able to say, hey, when we saw in electromagnetic radiation, in different types of light, when we saw this gamma ray burst, we believe this corresponded to either something where we made a neutron star, either something where we made a black hole, or something where we made one of these hypermassive neutron stars that started out as a neutron star and then became a black hole. Even if we look at the events where we only have electromagnetic data, where we don't have gravitational wave data, um, has that been able to teach us anything interesting about that range of where are they neutron stars, where are they black holes, and where can they be hypermassive neutron stars? Yeah, yeah, I do think so. That has to do with work that I did recently, and I think that we were able to learn something about that. Just as a little bit of context in terms of the variety of gamma ray bursts, they are, um, they are divided into classes, the short and the long 
gamma ray bursts because sometimes scientists are creative in their names and sometimes they are not. So the short are short and the long are long. And the difference between short and long is about two seconds. But there are, uh, there have been recently papers about the shortest long burst ever seen and the longest short burst ever seen. And the division between short and long is not very precise. But as a broad picture, with the many of these events that we have seen, uh, they seem to group into these two categories of the short bursts and the long bursts. And the long bursts have been associated with supernova explosions, deaths of massive stars, and the short bursts have been at least proposed to be associated with binary neutron star mergers for a very long time. And since 2017, we have one example where this association turns out to be true. Hmm. Now, we have been seeing these bursts since the 60s or 70s. The first of the gamma ray bursts was observed by a military satellite that was looking for signatures of um, nuclear tests on Earth and got this strong gamma ray signal that turned out was not coming from the Earth. So there is some Cold War history for the beginning of the study of gamma ray bursts. But then we have decades of recording of these events. So one idea that I had was that since we have this association between the short bursts and the binary neutron star mergers, maybe we could look at them and try to find a special signature of these hypermassive neutron stars. I told you before, we see in simulations of their gravitational waves that they have these characteristic frequencies in the few kilohertz range that we cannot yet see in gravitational waves. But maybe, and there were a lot of maybes there, a lot of assumptions, but if things happen kind of just right, maybe we would be able to see a modulation of the gamma ray burst with that characteristic frequency of a hypermassive neutron star. And the way it works is as follows. A gamma ray burst is recorded as a um, detector. You can think about it as the CCD in your camera, although it's a different type of thing. But it's, um, it's acquiring photons, right? A lot of photons arrive, and their times of arrival and their energies are recorded. And you can make a plot of how many photons have arrived over time. Great. So, sounds sounds reasonable. I, I, I buy that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so imagine that uh, you were doing that with a steady source of light. You have a um, light bulb, for example. So you have a steady flux of photons that are arriving in your detector. Now, if, for example, I were to wave my hand 
in front of that light bulb with a certain frequency, my detector would be seeing a variation in the stream of photons that are coming from that light bulb because my hand is in front of it and then it's not, right? Right. So some sometimes it's obscured. That's that's kind of how we do uh, exoplanet detection with the transit method. Exactly. Exactly. So that's just to think about the modulation and the photon counts that we are seeing. Now, the thing with the gamma ray bursts is that they look nothing like a steady stream of photons, right? Normally, they are incredibly spiky. You don't see anything, and then you see a lot of photons coming, and this goes up and down and up and down, and it's very stochastic. And if you have seen the, this called the light curve of the gamma ray burst, this plot of the number of photons that arrive over time, and if you have seen one, you have seen only one, because each one of these gamma ray bursts, they just look different. They rise fast, they drop more slowly, or they rebrighten later, or they have precursors earlier, or they have all sorts of weird spiky things going on in their light curves. And that makes it harder to look for that modulation that I wanted to look for, right? Because this is a source that's already varying a lot in a stochastic way. So how can I see that modulation and how can I be sure that what I see isn't noise, right? Isn't coming from the intrinsic noise of this spikiness of the source coming to my detector. So that's what was uh, already foreseen as the difficulty in this type of analysis. Oh boy, I'm such a nerd that I would guess like, oh, is it much clearer in Fourier space? Is it much clearer if you say, let's hone in on some specific frequencies? Well, absolutely, it is something that you have to do in Fourier space. And you want to be a little bit careful when you are choosing your frequencies, right? So from the simulations, we knew that we wanted to look for something in the few kilohertz range. So we decided to do that from 500 to 5,000 hertz. And one of the reasons for that is the expectation from the simulations. Another reason is that if you go to lower frequencies, you have something called red noise, which messes up with your analysis even more. At these higher frequencies, you should only expect white noise, which is frequency independent, but that doesn't mean that the spectrum is flat and a constant, it just means that it kind of averages to a constant, okay. right? Uh, okay, so we took advantage of decades of data collection on gamma ray bursts. We had a sample of about 700 of these, and we had already analyzed hundreds of them without finding anything. And we were getting ready to write a very boring upper limits paper, right? 
to say that uh, if there is uh, a modulation that can be associated with a hypermassive neutron star, it cannot be stronger than this much because in that case we would have seen it. All right. So you you were you were originally going to say okay, you're originally going to say okay, we can we can place a meaningful constraint on this if this signal was in the data above this threshold we would have seen it so if it's there it's below this threshold exactly but and, then but then we decided to um look at data from an older detector that already um that doesn't work anymore so that detector was called betsy and it was on board the Compton Gamma Ray Observatory. Oh wow, that was that's an old school one. I think that was one of the original uh, NASA Great Observatories from way back in the day. Yes, absolutely. And for people who haven't heard of the NASA Great Observatories, Hubble is one of them, because NASA had the Great Observatories working in gamma rays, X rays, and the optical and in the infrared yeah. humble who's still up and running is the one working the optical and compton was the one working in the gamma rays and it had amazing instruments on board unfortunately um in 2000 it lost one of its gyroscopes and then it had a spare so it was still comfortably in orbit, but if it were to lose another one, it could not be controlled anymore. So NASA decided, unfortunately, to safely deorbit uh, the satellite. It fell into the ocean. Now it sleeps with the fishes <laughs> and observes the ocean from the inside. The gamma ray ocean, just, just what oceanographers always wanted. Oh yeah, of course. But before that happened, it was able to observe almost 3,000 gamma ray bursts. People didn't know back in the day if all of these sources were in our galaxy or if they were cosmological, spread out through the universe. And it, that was the instrument that really allowed us to see how they were isotropically distributed in the sky and therefore they had to be of cosmological origin. They were not all in our galaxy. It helped us learn a tremendous amount about gamma rays. And this specific instrument that it had on board called Batsy was really, really good for the type of analysis that I wanted to do because it had by far the larger detector area than any such instruments ever. And if you have a larger area, you're collecting more photons. And if you're trying to find a modulation in the number of photons, of course it helps if you have more. So when we were getting ready to write the boring upper limits paper, we decided let's give it a try with the old Batsy data. And this was interesting because that's data from the 90s. 
And as much as I tried to convince myself that no, 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 the 90s, that that was only like 10 years ago, right? Uh, 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 not no. anymore. <laughs> no, no, not anymore, not anymore. <laughs> and we had to look for people who could help us to find where's the data? Who knows about the data? Who still knows about the instrument? And we started like talking with someone that gave us the contact of somebody else. And we needed to contact someone who was already retired and we talked to them on the phone. And then we talked to somebody else that is, turns out retiring this year. <laughs> but we were able to catch these old timers that had worked with the instrument back in the 90s and could guide us to the proper data files where they were stored and could help us understand if there were any um, any aspects that could be problematic with the data, if there were any instrumental artifacts that could mimic the signal that we were trying to look for. So it was uh, quite the um, sociological experience to try to work with the old data. And in that old data, about, I don't know, 500 bursts or so, we found two of them that passed all of our tests, showed very strong evidence for the signal that we were looking for, um, that agreed nicely with each other. That was also a plus and also agreed very nicely with the simulations that predicted those frequencies from the binary neutron star mergers. So this was a, a fishing expedition, so to speak, looking at all of these archival data files from three different detectors and Either we would be able to place constraints or we would be able to find something and that would be great. And we actually did. And what that tells us, if we were able to find it in only two events out of more than 700, is that it's either intrinsically very rare that you have the formation of a hypermassive neutron star, or it is very rare that we are able to see it for reasons that could be uh, an observational bias or that may have to do with the detectors that we have. You know, the fact that you saw anything at this point, even in a sample of many hundreds, uh, tells me, first off, that, that these objects exist and that in existing data, uh, you can tease out the signal of where they occur. Now, now there may be other signals that you're not yet able to tease out, but but this is at least not only an existence proof, but uh, but having two of them shows this is not exceedingly rare. This is something that there are many of these in the universe, and if we build sensitive enough detectors with wide enough field views and enough sensitivity, we should be able to see, measure, and characterize these. And that that's a fascinating frontier to be on. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And now that we have learned more 
about what these signals look like in gamma rays, because we had an expectation from the simulations, and there are issues with the simulations. For example, simulations are very dissipative, so that means that in Fourier space we would be looking for peaks that are broader because of this dissipation, while what we found in the gamma ray data are peaks that are a little bit narrower than predicted, at least by some simulations. Now that we have learned more about them, we want to go back to some of the data that we analyzed and where we didn't see anything. And there is a lot of data where we want to give it another try to see if there were um, more signals hiding there that we can dig out. Well, I think that's a, a super smart plan. What what happens when you look at things in the other direction and say, okay, we have more archival data from more of these older things, uh, and we'll find some of them. But what do you think about looking ahead? You know, there has been some talk in the astronomy community of building a new fleet of great observatories. And if we got one of those, if you could say, hey, give me the gamma ray instrument, give me the gravitational wave detector that's going to find and be sensitive to large numbers of this type of object, uh, what would we build? So if we're looking ahead to the future of astronomy and the future of discovering a, more about these high mass neutron stars or about these events that give rise to these high mass neutron stars, what what type of things should we look forward to building? Right. So in terms of gravitational waves, we should be looking towards the next generation of ground-based gravitational wave detectors. Because something like the future space-based gravitational wave detectors called LISA, the Laser Interferometer Space Antenna, that's going to be an amazing instrument, but it's going to be looking at gravitational waves in frequencies of millihertz, orders of magnitude lower than what I need to study neutron stars. No, so you, you're going to want a ground-based detector that's, you know, not maybe four kilometer arms. You're going to want one that's maybe 40 kilometer arms, aren't you? <laughs> yes, yeah, so the 40 kilometer arms project is the Cosmic Explorer. But Cosmic Explorer as a project um, foresees two detectors, two L-shaped detectors. And one is the 40-kilometer arm, and the other one is a bit smaller. And the bit smaller one is meant to be able to look at higher frequencies. Because just like with the pendulum, right? The frequency that you can see with the interferometer depends on the length of the arm. So if you make your arm too long, your optimal frequency range is going to be lower. So Cosmic Explorer has in the project, that's not funded yet, is not approved yet, two detectors with different sizes, and the smaller one is meant to help studying neutron stars going to higher frequencies. There is an Australian project, it's called NEMO, I think it's the Neutron Star Merger Observatory, maybe I'm wrong, but I think it's what it means, the acronym, 
and that one is going to be um, sort of tuned to this higher frequencies in the kilohertz band. Again, it's a project, but it's that kind of thing that I would like to see funded for doing studies of gravitational waves from the ground and going up to these kilohertz frequencies. From yeah. space, that's where we have to see the gamma rays, because thankfully our atmosphere shows us from most of the gamma ray radiation. And we will, we would need for, if I could have my wish list for the future gamma ray instrument, it would be something with a large detector area and with exquisite timing accuracy for timing the arrival of the photons and allowing for this uh, Fugge analysis in the frequency domain to look for these oscillations. All right. I mean... I, I always like to look ahead over the frontiers. Uh, for those of you who are very, very angry Australians, uh, NEMO is the neutron star extreme matter observatory. The E, the e is for extreme. Um, but, but for everyone else out there, uh, what, a, what a great look ahead to what, what we are going to be able to find. Um, Cecilia, I want to thank you for such a wonderful conversation, for bringing us right up to the frontiers. Um, I wanted to ask if you could imagine sort of uh, what we sometimes call a golden event. If you could say, okay, what would be the dream thing that we could have occur that would teach me just oodles of what I want to know about high mass neutron stars. What What's the dream event that would occur? And is this something that you could actually reasonably to expect to happen within, say, a single human lifetime? Oh, let me think about that. Um, definitely an event that is nearby and for which we can see everything. We can see the gravitational waves, the gamma rays, the kilonova, everything. Um, so if we could have the event from 2017 again with our current detectors, that would be fantastic. Uh, one important aspect of this special golden event is that it would have to wait for the LIGO detectors to be turned back on because LIGO, uh, with good reason, shuts down for improvements in the detectors periodically. But while that happens, we are sort of blind to the gravitational wave events in the universe. There are only much smaller detectors that are still on sky watch but they have very low sensitivity so it's uh, i guess that what i would hope for is to have a very close binary neutron star merging when ligo is turned on and of course we're also expecting for that galactic 
quark collapse supernova to happen again when LIGO is turned on because then we're going to be able to learn a lot about the process through which a neutron star is formed. You know, that's that's not only wonderful, I, I would like to add on that for my wish list. Uh, if we have a galactic supernova, great. If we have a neutron star merger, I also want it to be close enough that um, that we could have the trifecta where we're not just detecting gravitational waves and electromagnetic radiation, uh, but I also want neutrinos. I want to get neutrinos too. If we had a galactic supernova, absolutely we'd get that. But if we had a neutron star merger, I think we'd have to get pretty lucky. We'd need something, I think in like Maybe if we had it within the distance to the Virgo cluster, some 55 or 60 million light years away, we might have a shot. Uh, definitely if we had something that was within like 10 million light years, something in the local group or maybe the nearby M81 group, we could get it. I think we'd have to get really lucky for that, though. Yeah, well, I think that it definitely in a human lifetime, we can expect that this is going to happen. Well, that's that's not bad. You know, I I like to think I have maybe as much life in front of me as I have behind me, but we'll we'll just have to wait and see for that one. Cecilia, this has been really fascinating and wonderful, but we are running out of time, and I would like to ask you if you have any final thoughts you'd like our listeners to take away from this. Okay, I'm going to ramble a little bit here, and I hope it turns out coherent. Go for it. But I think that as a final thought, it is fantastic that so many people are excited about learning about the universe and they're excited about the science that we are doing or trying to do with that goal in mind. Because we start working on physics and astrophysics and astronomy because we were fascinated by it, right? Because we like to look at the sky at night, because we like to watch Star Trek or whatever your favorite brand of science fiction is. But it's, uh, it turns out that it wasn't easy. Nobody said it was going to be easy to get your PhD in physics and to do research and to write the papers and do the analysis, a lot of mathematics and coding and reading. It's hard work. So it's uh, sometimes easy for us to lose that sense of wonder of how marvelous it is that we are studying what we are studying and we are learning what we are learning. And talking with people in the public and answering their questions and hearing their views and bringing to them this wonder, I think it also brings back to us the same wonder. And I'm very grateful for it. 
Well, that's a wonderful message. I really thank you for sharing that. You know, there are so many of us, I think, when we first get into astronomy and astrophysics, that we love thinking about the big picture. We love thinking about the big goal of where it's going to take us and where we are and, and what's next, uh, that we forget that most of what we actually spend our time doing is in this day-to-day -day work, is in the, in the simulations and the calculations and the observations and the instrument building and, and all of the day-to-day stuff. If you find that boring and mundane and a slog and just hoops you have to jump through, um, it's a very different experience than if you actually really love that part of it too. And Cecilia, I can tell you do. And to everyone out there who thinks they would love this too, I'd, I'd recommend you learn more about it and maybe go for it yourself because learning about this universe and participating in discovering it for yourself, that's something that's open and available to everyone. So thank you, all of you out there, for tuning in. Thank you to our sponsor, Avenues Online, and thank you especially to our Patreon supporters, without whom this podcast wouldn't be possible. So thanks go out to verbally all the people donating at the $5 a month level and above, including... Chad Marler, Jeff Bonwick, Lainey Chuist, Rob Hansen, Samir Kumar, Tim Graham, Aaron Weiss, Chris Chikutas, John Methot, John Van Balaguyan, Matt Conroe, Pattern Shift, Pete Smoyer, Pierre Franson, Sea Green Mango, Stefan Berneger, William Blair, Amira Sosnick, Andy and Wall, Benish Tech LLC, Brian Terry, David Charney, Flo, George Church, John Kozura, Joseph Dvorak, Jose Enrique, Kilio Opu, Marcelo Barnaba, Mark Armstrong, Matt Glasser, Patrick Dennis, Pedro Texera, Rafael Wojcik, Randall Sleeve, Mac, Ron Schiffman, Sean Foley, Adam Robinson, Adrian Griffiths, Alan Parikh, Andres Chovanek, Arnulfo Zapeta, Ben Head, Bob Shire, Brainwise, Brett Minder, Carl Iddings, Casey Haskins, Dan Steelen, Dana Bridges, David Hibbets, David Taschioni, David Wolf, Dick Pills, Dwayne Williams, Fraser Kane, Gabriel Nader, Glenn McDavid, Ira Cohen, James Bryson Hyatt, James Nance, Jason Luttrell, Jason McCampbell, Javier Zazo, Jeff Renike, Kelly Kudrick, Lockwood Carlson, Mark Bloor, Mark Langston, Michael Hall, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Nathan Hannon, Neil Flood, Owen Mann, Pam Harris, Paul Lester, Pavel Zuzelski, Philip Francis, Radek Nesbida, Rich Weigel, Richard Schwartz, Ron Lyle, Rushin Shah, Sam Terzakian, Steve Nordhoff, Stuart Lending, Tina Tallon, Tom Van Scotter, Tomas All, Tomas Walgren, Wayne Pierkarski, Weller Tractor Salvage, William Vanden Heuvel, and Young Co. S. Thanks to all of you for tuning in, and we'll see you back here next time for more Starts With a Bang.